Hello and welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Gareth Cuddle and I am the manager of the Neuroscience Project here at the college. Today we're recording live at the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor David A. Ross from Yale University in the United States who's going to talk to us about his experiences in education in neuroscience and psychiatry. Professor Ross is one of the foremost psychiatric educators in the United States. In 2019, David received the highly prestigious teaching award of the Society of Biological Psychiatry. David was a member of the Gatsby Welcome Neuroscience Commission, which directed the development of the MRC Psych Syllabus for 2018. And he's a member of the RC Psych Neuroscience Board, which oversees the activities of the RC Psych Gatsby Welcome Neuroscience Project. Professor Ross, thank you for joining us. So, Dave, tell us what fascinates you about neuroscience. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it is the coolest thing going on in science and in medicine right now. I mean, I think these are the questions that are central to what makes us human. How do we think? How do we feel? How do we respond to the world? All of this stuff is, is about neuroscience. And, and we're at this unique moment in history where for millennia, we've had no ability to understand the biological basis of these core human attributes. And now all of a sudden we have the tools to be able to understand that. And this is really cool. I don't know if you want the story of how I first got interested in this, which is, I don't know if we've ever talked about that. I don't think we have. Yeah. So, so this, this was really quite an accidental pathway for me. So when I was an undergrad, uh, I don't think I had much of a clue what I wanted to do with my life. It, it wasn't this. Um, I was interested in biology, evolutionary biology, organismal biology, like ecology, that stuff. Um, and at the same time, I was singing in a group, uh, an acapella group. And the conductor of the group was somebody who had perfect pitch. And I really had never encountered this before. And it was a really strange experience for me, to be perfectly honest, because she would ask me to do things that just made no sense. She'd be like, can't you just sing a C? I'd be like, no. But can't you hear that note? It's like a quarter of a step flat. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I was really struck that there were two of us sitting there ostensibly hearing the same thing, but having utterly different perceptual experiences of that identical cue. And that was just fascinating. Like, where was that and how did that happen and what was that all about? And this is mid-90s. So cognitive neuroscience didn't really exist the way we think of it now. It wasn't, wasn't a major you could study in college. And like even figuring out like how to ask the question was not obvious. So I sort of started going around to anyone who could answer anything that was close to that. And that led me down a path of a project doing functional imaging for language, which was functional imaging was like brand new. So again, like this is how extraordinary is this moment, right? So the first functional MRI paper was in 1991. First paper, right? It was five to 10 years before it was accepted that the signal we were seeing actually correlated with brain activity. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing these, this work in the mid-90s, like we would send off a paper and, and the reviewers would be like, well, you don't know if that signal correlates with brain activity. And they reject it. <laughs> it like, so, so I started doing language and neuroscience. And then when I got back, uh, I started doing music and then got more and more into that question of how do we understand the neurobiological basis of this complex 
human experience. Um, and so that was how I got into it in the first place. And ultimately decided to pursue an MD-PhD. Still wasn't thinking about psychiatry. I don't know why, that's a whole separate conversation. But found during the experience of my first psychiatry clerkship rotation that it was really the same question as had drawn me in in the music study of you have two people sitting across from each other having totally different experiences of the world. And how do we make sense of that? And, and more now than just the academic question of how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that in a way that we can actually help somebody who's sick get better? And that's really cool that we finally have the tools and the ability to be able to ask those questions, come up with answers, hypotheses that lead us to new treatments. That's a long-winded answer. That's a fantastic I it, answer. I hope it gets close to what you want. <laughs> so we're thinking about psychiatry in the 21st century now. Yeah. Why do you think psychiatrists need to be familiar with neuroscience? I think the central problem that the field faces is one of persistent, pervasive dualism, that we pretend that there's mind and there's brain and that these are separate entities. And they're not. All of our experiences, all of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors are coming through our brains. So the diseases we treat are diseases of the brain. That's, that's what they are. And, and there are so many instances when we see it laid bald of just how pervasive that dualism is, that we pretend that these can be separate things. So Matt State, who's now the chair at UCSF, often talks about how ridiculous it is. How could a psychiatrist possibly not talk about the brain and learn about the brain and study the brain? How ridiculous would it be if you had a cardiologist who just said, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about the heart. Like if he just described it to his patients as this, you know, this squishy little thing in your chest that does stuff, but we're not really going to talk about that. We're just going to prescribe you these medications. Preposterous. So of course we have to talk about it. These are the diseases we treat. And it's a strange contingency of history that, that we don't do that. And, and it's a theme I'll, I'll elaborate on a little bit in the talk tonight. But the... One of the reasons this, this has stuck is, is a byproduct of the history of the field. Okay, so if you look back more than 30 years or so, we had no tools with which to study the brain in a meaningful way. Like we just didn't have access to the data we needed. Now we still had to be able to classify patients and we still had to be able to run trials so we could see what medications worked and what didn't work. And, and so out of that, we created the DSM. And the DSM was designed out of a recognition that we don't have access to the data we need. We can't actually understand the biology. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the things that we can observe with the eye. And we're going to do the best we can to sort conditions based on what we can see with the eye. And in that regard, it allows us to create these categories, to do studies, and to have data that are real data that tell us if somebody fits this category, you should do this. But we now know those categories, they're nonsense, right? We know that schizophrenia isn't a single condition. It's many conditions. We know that depression isn't a single disease. It's a syndrome. Godfrey Perlson has spoken beautifully about this idea of like, so, so psychiatry with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, this is Godfrey's favorite metaphor, is where medicine was with dropsy 100 years ago. It's a great description of the phenomenology of what you can see with your eyes, but there are many different causes that can give you that. And if you pretend that they're all the same, 
you're 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 just in terrible shape, and you're going to cause harm to your patients. And so, so I get that historically there has been a need for us to work in that way, but we're not there anymore. You know, and we're finally starting to see to to have the ability to parse disorders based on the actual relevant biology and to treat people separately based on that. It's hard work. It's slow work. We're not moving as quickly as we'd like. But if we're going to be psychiatrists in the 21st century, we have to be able to understand the relevant biology. And as the field emerges, to be able to integrate that into the way that we practice. So can you see a day? And if so, at what point in the future would you speculate that we'll have a biologically based stratification of patients? Yeah, I think it's going to be slow and kind of accidental is, is the most likely thing. And, and so, so, you know, we see places where we chip away at this, right? So, so one interesting story is uh, the one that Susan Cahalan has talked about in Brain on Fire. Right. So here's somebody who describes her own experience of what everybody assumed was a schizophrenic break, but it actually was an anti-NMDA encephalitis. And so once you have the ability to biologically diagnose that, it's no longer schizophrenia. It's anti-NMDA encephalitis. And so we leave behind everything that we still can't understand in this category, but we now have these little things that get removed from that category. Chipping away. Right. And, you know, there's a piece on the NNCI website. I'll make a shameless plug. Um, we have a series of mini talks uh, that go under the name This Stuff is really cool. Um, Chris Bartley from UCSF did a brilliant talk that builds on that story where, you know, the anti NMDA encephalitis is rare, but how many other conditions like that might there be? that we haven't even been able to look for because we didn't have the right tools. And the story's really interesting when you start to dig in. So I think we're gonna see that across many conditions, slowly, gradually. You know, so there's that approach. The other approach would be, you could use big data approaches and you could say, let's forget all of these arbitrary DSM diagnoses, lump everybody together and just look, where's the signal? How does this naturally sort? Um, and see what comes out. And, and we may start to find things. And, and the other, you see, you also see with like machine learning approaches of being able to predict treatment responses and whether that might be another way that we ultimately are able to parse data. Who knows? What would you say is the best way for us to develop those tools and put them in the toolbox for psychiatrists to diagnose? What's the best approach to well, so developing? I, think, I mean, there's two halves to that, right? So, so one half is... Um, how do we develop basic tools in neuroscience? The other half is how do psychiatrists learn? There's three. How do we develop basic tools that allow us to study the brain with more detail and more nuance and more depth? Second is how do psychiatric researchers apply those tools to clinical pathology and to health? Third is how do clinicians learn to integrate this into the flow of their universe? And those are each like really separate questions. So, I mean, if you want to think about the basic tools, Carl Dyseroth's been associated with the commission. Um, he partnered with Ed Boyden. I just had the chance to interview Ed for our podcast. So there are some really smart people who are thinking really creatively about mm -hmm. how do we how do we approach this. I've never heard Carl tell this story, but I heard Ed tell this story. Like, so apparently the two of them were grad students. Like the, Ed was a first year grad student. 
And the two of them were sitting down. And the question was, one of the reasons it's really hard to study the brain is because you can't actually selectively activate anything, right? Like everything's big and complicated. You can't get down to lower levels. And so they, they sat there and they said, well, how could we stimulate a particular cell? And as Ed describes, he said, well, you start from first principles. So what we said was, well, what are all of the forms of energy in the universe? And there's gravity and there's light and there's sound. And then we sort of just went down that list and we said, okay, well, what if we could use light? I mean, that would be really cool. And he said, oh yeah, I remember reading this paper. So there are really smart people working on that problem who are way better than I could ever do. And then I think from that, you then have this second question of like, how do we begin to apply this within psychiatry? And that's a really interesting niche of who are the researchers doing that and how do we make these translational connections? Because I think everybody is actually hungry for that interface. And, and there's a problem with the hyper-specialization of science across all of science, where people go really narrow and lose sight of the big picture. Uh, the recent David Epstein book, Range, is beautiful commentary on many things, including that problem of, of how much trouble you can get into through hyper-specialization and how much insight can be gleaned from being able to look across conventional boundaries. And then you have the question of like, okay, once this work is in full force, how do we get it into the hands of clinicians? Um, and that's that's the part where I've spent all my time. So Carl and Ed, basically, they, they don't think outside the box. They just live outside the box, don't they? I've never, I mean, like I've read articles about Elon Musk yeah. and first principles like and stuff that. like this, because that's how Tesla is created, yeah. like at least as it's described in the literature, where it's just like, oh yeah, you know, I mean, if you were going to start a car, but you had never seen a car before or anything like this, how would you build a car? And and what comes out on the other side is something that is unlike any other car that's ever been, right? And But I've never heard a scientist talk this way. I mean, but like when you hear Ed talk about like creating expansion microscopy, like it's another one of these just epiphanies that you're like, what an incredible translational insight from one domain, diaper technology into cell biology successfully and incredibly. And you're just like, wow, it's awesome. Dave, you've advocated a particular kind of approach to the teaching and learning of neuroscience. I have. That's true. Um, could you explain this to us? Yeah. I, I think a lot of conventional graduate medical education, you'll see people describe it as the empty vessel model, that we're going to line people up and we're just going to pour content into their heads. And we've been teaching this way for centuries for millennia where we have really smart people stand up and say lots of things and then we expect the other people to have learned it and it's it's a wonderful fantasy and you know we've all been doing this since we were like five years old where we sit in a lecture and it gives us that warm fuzzy feeling as if we're learning but the data are really clear it's not an effective means of transmitting information it's not how people actually learn in the real world. Um, and there's a whole range of cool studies that, that you can look at. There was just one in PNAS a month or two ago that, that got exactly at this. They were looking at a physics class. It was actually a randomly controlled experiment where they split the class. One group got conventional lecture. The other group got small group exercises. And what they found is the group that got the lecture liked the experience more. They thought they were learning more. The other group did not enjoy doing the practice-based learning or whatever you want to call it. And when you looked at the outcomes, the group that actually worked hard, <laughs> did the practice-based learning, learned more, and they did better on the assessments at the end. 
uh, David Epstein in Range actually talks about this a lot. And this gap of we, we learn when we are challenged, when we make mistakes, when we get feedback. Like That's how we learn. So we can't pretend, because this is what graduate medical education has been forever, that we can just line up our experts and have them tell our students what they need to know as if they actually know that. Because when we've gone and assessed whether students know the things that we assume they all must know, they don't know. And so for us, it's really how do we actively engage participants in the content? How do we build in structured assessments so that we can actually find out? How do we build in opportunities for feedback? How do we set at its core, like realistic learning objectives. There was one thing, right, at the core of all of this. Most of conventional, traditional teaching is teacher-focused. I, as the teacher, am going to get up and I am going to talk about this. It's preposterous, right? It's not about the teacher. It's about the student, right? So a well-formulated learning objective should be in the format of, as a direct result of this educational intervention, the student will fill in the blank. It's not about us. It's about them. Um, there's a great quote. I don't know if I can get it off the top of my head from Herbert Simon, who's a Nobel laureate, one of the creators of cognitive neuroscience. Something like learning results from what the student does and thinks and only from what the student does and thinks. The teacher can influence learning only by changing how the student thinks and behaves. So we need to learn how to get out of our own damn way, set realistic learning objectives, and let students have an experience that will let them learn the material. So how can we get people to change their practices? How can we best prepare trainers, faculty members to adopt these different kinds of educational practices? I think it's very hard. I think it's very hard. So, so and this is a big part of the problem, right? So it, it's a problem on both sides. So, so you're classic faculty member, if you will, right? The people who have probably been teaching this are people who may have been on the faculty forever, yeah. right? And so you have two problems embedded in that. One is that they probably trained before neuroscience existed. They didn't learn any of this stuff because it didn't exist. I don't fault them for that, right? And they've been off and their work is largely clinical work. That's what they do. So they're not gonna feel comfortable with the content that we're asking them to teach they will have likely instilled in their minds this empty vessel model that they're supposed to be imparting wisdom, which becomes extremely dangerous. If they think that's their job, then they're going to prepare for a session as if that were their job. So one of the worst train wrecks that we'll see in a classroom is when you have a faculty member who's expected to teach something in neuroscience. Now, like any self-respecting faculty member at a major institution, they feel insecure about their own sense of what they know and how smart they are and all these things because we all feel that way. And so how do they combat that anxiety? They go home, they study more, they prepare more, they spend hours and hours and hours preparing this lecture, which at a subconscious level is a defense of their own knowledge and expertise. They feel an obligation to prove that they are this world expert. And what they're actually doing is further alienating the students because they probably started with an assumption of, oh, the students know all this stuff. Now, if they had actually assessed, they would have discovered the students didn't know any of that stuff, right? And, and the more they do this preparation, the further and further away they get from where the students actually are and the less actively engaged the student is likely to be. What we really need is for a faculty member to be able to come in and just say, hey, where are you guys at? 
and how can I help you? The constructivist model of learning would be we're all on a journey at any moment in time, whether it's from point A to B or C to D or E to F. The role of the facilitator, I kind of want to go on a crusade against the word teacher because I think the connotations are actually kind of screwy at this point. We should be facilitating that journey. So the best thing you can possibly do is identify where somebody's stuck, help them formulate that question in a coherent way, and then help them personally resolve that. Of course, this calls out all the other structural issues, right? If you have a lecture with 100 people in the room, they're not all at the same place. They're all at different places. So the, the structure of the lecture, the way the curriculum is built, is designed so that both students and teachers will fail. Right. So that's I mean, it's not that it's totally insurmountable, but it's it's a major challenge. And the teacher only feels like they've done a good job if they've got through all 200 slides. Correct. Each one crammed with far too much information. This is not inspiring learning in anybody in the audience, is it? Right. It's, it's based on this faulty sense of, I always laugh when you go to a major conference and somebody starts with their learning objectives, because the learning objectives are, I'm going to tell you about this. And that's not a learning objective. The learning objective needs to be about the student, not me. Right. So if you come in with that sense of, I'm going to tell you 200 things on 200 slides, like it's ridiculous. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, the, the stuff is really cool talks. They're founded on this premise, right? More is not more. If you look back over the span of a year at all the talks you've been to at Grand Rounds, is the one that I always think about. At the end of the year, people can't even like remember which talks they went to or didn't go to. Nobody's going to remember a thing, right? If you're that faculty member with 200 slides, do you really believe that getting to the 198th slide is that's when they're going to get something more out of the experience? It's nonsense. So when we work with those presenters, we tell them, you are trying to convey one idea at one year. If there's a family member, a friend, a student sitting in the back of the room, one year from now, what will they remember about your talk? One thing. And if you can genuinely shift to that perspective, it changes everything, right? It actually makes it much easier. You don't have to worry about anything else. You can think about how am I going to present this in a way that will be memorable. You can start invoking all of these other core principles of how people learn. We actually remember narratives. We don't remember facts. We remember stories. My favorite little bit of neuroscience is, is the Rescorla-Wagner equation, which basically says that learning is going to be proportional to the perceived salience, how important something is, and surprise, how much it deviates from expectation. We should be thinking about that in the way we're framing content, right? And you can, you can start to leverage. We think about multimodal tools. What visuals are we using? What audio things are we using? Can we, can we leverage other creative things? We have one session where we use taste as a key part of the learning experience, right? All of these things that we could do to actually enhance their learning one idea at one year. Again, this is a radical proposition to say, yeah, no, instead of teaching you 200 slides about the not that's not, it's not possible in a classroom. It may be that we want you to know that. And if that's the case, you should go home and read a book and then we're going to have assessments. We're going to have discussions. Like there's lots of ways we could help you to learn that content, but spitting it out at you is not the best way. You use the expression there, learning experience. And you mentioned that people enjoy stories. People find stories and narratives very memorable, but experiences and experiential learning 
is incredibly powerful too, isn't it? And we remember experiences, good and bad. We remember very negative experiences vividly. Yeah. Something we've eaten. Yeah. When we've experienced pain. Absolutely. When we've had a technological disaster and spilt coffee right across the keyboard. There's a really cool book. I think it's called Moonwalking with Einstein by Josh Bauer. And he talks about spending a year training to compete in memory competitions. And he talks about all the tricks that he learns to use to be able to memorize ungodly large amounts of information. And what you're talking about also, like things that are uh, spicy, shall we say, lurid, um, you know, it works, right? Like th there are lots of things that we can do to, to enhance memory. So, so yeah, when I'm thinking about teaching, when I'm talking about facilitating a, a, a session, what I'm really trying to, to do is, can I design an experience for you? Can I create a moment for you that you're going to be in a classroom, you're going to have an experience, and as a result of it, you will think about the world differently afterwards in one small, modest way? Okay, I want to shift slightly now to the integration of neuroscience into psychiatry and clinical practice. I want you to speculate a little bit. What would you say are the areas of clinical psychiatry that are likely to see the soonest impact of progress in neuroscience? I, I think there's something tricky about that. That, again, it's linking progress to direct new clinical interventions. And I don't think that's fair or accurate. So to me, we have an obligation to be able to talk to our patients about what's wrong with them in the best way that we understand. And so we have an obligation to be able to describe to them what the actual relevant psychopathology is. And particularly in a field that has been so plagued with stigma for so long. And I think th this is really complicated. So I don't want to pretend that there is an answer to this. But one aspect of historical stigma comes from not understanding what's going on. And we lump into other, oh, that person's crazy. Because we lack the ability to understand what's actually going on. I get that there can be a downside on the other side, that, that it could be perceived as if we're saying, oh, there's something wrong with your brain. I think that's complicated and, and can be addressed in a different way. But at its core, being able to understand what's going on helps us. And so, so to me, we need to be doing this today across all of psychiatry. It, it, it's, it's just not okay to ignore the biology of the diseases that we treat. And, and I think in many cases, this, this helps. So um, I think having a, a, a real formulation helps patients and providers both understand what's going on. I think it helps with adherence with some treatments, right? And they may be medications or they may not be medications. So if you talk to a patient, you know, in some of the preposterous junk from our past, depression is a chemical imbalance. Our best understanding now is, is we could talk a lot about depression as a complex syndrome, but that seems to have an end common pathway. There may be many different ways you can get into it that stress leads to, we see shrinking of the hippocampus, we see reduction in the number of synapses, we see decrease in neurogenesis. Many different pathways through which you can get to that end point. And we know that all of our effective treatments seem to reverse that, that they lead to 
likely neurogenesis in humans, increased synaptogenesis, reversal of the atrophy of, of key brain regions, right? We have to be able to talk about this in a real way because it may be, I mean, one, we could be able to say, you know, the reason SSRIs don't work when I talk to a patient about an SSRI, I tell them, this is not a medicine like Tylenol. You're not going to take this and feel better in four hours because it doesn't work directly through the reuptake of serotonin. This is a medication that's about downstream effects that over the next weeks, it will be leading to this set of changes in your brain. That's what we hope will be happening. Patient needs to understand that if we expect them to take the medication in the way we want them to take it. Right? The number one reason that, that our medications don't work is because people don't take the medications in the way that which they're prescribed. It's something like a third of patients are taking medications in the, the way in which the physician intended for them to be taken. Yeah, no wonder a lot of them don't work, right? So part of it is, is how do we understand that? It may be not about the medication. It may be, hey, I need you to get to the gym three times a week for 20 minutes of cardio because we know that that has the same impact as an SSRI on BDNF and neurotrophic pathways, right? That's critical. It may be that having a robust formulation helps us think differently about phenomenology in certain diseases, okay? So two ones that I think about all the time would be post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders. So with PTSD, we know the core biology involves fear conditioning. There was a traumatic experience. There was fear conditioning that paired the reaction associated with that cue with all of the triggers that were in the environment. Patients come in all the time and they're scared and they're confused because they don't understand what's happening. And often it's because they don't even recognize that they are constantly being triggered by things that are fear conditioned associated, even just bringing awareness to that. Here's the biology that explains this thing that is perplexing and confusing and scary to you. Right? When you think about addiction, addiction is the same. It's not fear conditioning, but it's classical conditioning. Right? You may have cocaine or opiates that are conditioned to all of these cues in the world. You might not even be aware of them. The handling of money, a particular location, a particular person that you encounter. So being able to understand, oh, the craving you're experiencing here is because of this. Here's the natural progression that we would expect. And here's how we treat it. You don't have to do anything other than being able to like help extinguish that conditioning, right? So just on a day-to-day -day basis, being able to understand the world in which we live and what we're experiencing, it's critical to formulation. We have to be able to talk this way with our patients. We have to be able to, right? I mean, there's other core phenomena, right? Like where, where we have these fantasies of um, our next column in biological psychiatry, um, each of which is one core concept in neuroscience, clear, relevant, and accessible to a broad audience. Very narrative pieces. Uh, I think it comes out this week, honestly, is looking at chronic opiate use disorder. And from a lay perspective, well, you're not using, so you're better. And there's this whole new emerging set of data demonstrating that when you've had prolonged use for a long period of time, you get this allostatic shift. The system does not return to normal. And it may never return to normal. Hopefully there are treatments that will help it too. But decades after use, you may have these cravings that come up, right? Being able to understand the phenomenology neurobiologically, like you, 
eliminate the mystery. Here's here's what we understand about what's happening. So I think that's like essential just for how we think about diseases, how we talk about diseases with our patients. Then you have interventions that you base on those that may be proximal, like, okay, if this is something that's going to be a, a relapse cue, how do we problem solve that? How do we use psychotherapy to address these biological mitigating factors, determining factors? Then you have what everybody thinks about, right? Like way down the road is, can we design a new drug that might actually help with this? That's what people assume neuroscience ought to be in psychiatry. But I, to me, that's like the tail end of the story. There's a lot of richness in everything that comes before that. Um, and in those cases, like there's really cool, sexy research going on right now, right? Like disrupting reconsolidation of memories um, in trauma patients. And that's been shown to work in animals and now clinically in humans. Cool paper in the Green Journal beginning of this year uh, showing beta blockers in conjunction with an exposure therapy seems to disrupt reconsolidation and lead to dramatic improvements. We're using meds that can augment plasticity or interventional approaches that could augment plasticity or, you know, I mean, a, a whole, so I think there's lots of examples of that as well. Um, rexanolone, right? First, one could argue the first time that we've said, okay, here's a condition. Here's what we understand about the, the pathophysiology of that condition. Based on that, here's a, here's a treatment pathway that we think might work. Here's a drug and it works. And now it's on the market. So. I think these examples are there. They're going to continue to increase as we move forward. The reality is that change is slow and it takes a while to do really hard work. So I think what you're describing is in the 21st century, psychiatry is a profession. Psychiatrists are going to have an ever more important role as patient educators, mm. as explainers, people who are prepared and confident enough to explain to patients and carers the biological aspects, biological bases of their conditions. Yeah. As you started asking the question, I had this like association pop up in my head. I was remembering, um, I, was, I was sick when I was in high school. I had abdominal pain that took them forever to figure out. And there's something about the experience of being ill and the fear that comes with that. And I just think, can you imagine if you went to your physician and you're like, I have abdominal pain. And they looked at you and were like, oh yeah, you have abdominal pain. If you're like, seriously? You go to your physician because you expect them to identify what's going on. Why is it happening? What do they expect to happen? What treatment, like prognosis, even if it's not good, that's the role of a physician is to be able to, and, and there's a tremendous sense of relief that can come just from that basic holding space, if you will, of, yeah, I understand you're experiencing this. Here's how we think about this. This is what we understand. This is what we can expect that mitigates that unbounded fear and anxiety of the unknown. And so you know, especially when we're the one branch of medicine that actually is able to talk to our patients, right? I mean, I don't know what it's like over here, but in, but in the U.S., like primary care is so rapid fire. I was just hearing somebody describe a visit with their primary care physician where they were told, point blank, they had some other problem. They were like, oh, I can't talk about any other problems because if it's not part of routine care, it has to be billed separately. 
And I was like, seriously, you go to your physician and you have a problem and they say they can't talk to you about the problem because like the structure of the appointment prevents that. Like, I mean, the state of medicine is, is, is dark and that's a whole separate conversation. But, but in psychiatry, our job is to be able to sit, to listen, to connect and to educate. So yeah, I think that's probably our central responsibility is to be able to talk to our patients thoughtfully about these things. Dave, if you had your time again, would you become a psychiatrist? Or a neuroscientist. <laughs> you have introduced a dualism into the question itself, as if the two are different. So, you know, Tom Insel, uh, former director of the NIMH, a man who I adore, very smart man and a visionary, uh, he talked a lot about abolishing psychiatry as a discipline, abolishing neurology as a discipline, and we should have a discipline of clinical neuroscience. I'm not quite as far along as he is, as far as abolishing psychiatry and neurology. But, but I think that psychiatrists need to think of ourselves as clinical neuroscientists. The diseases we treat are diseases of the brain. We're all neuroscientists, whether we like it or not. That is the space in which we are practicing. Even if you're a psychotherapist, we know that psychotherapy is changing the brain. You're treating brain illnesses. You're, you're identifying, you're diagnosing, and you're treating brain illnesses with psychotherapy. You're still intervening at that level. So we're all neuroscientists and psychiatrists. And frankly, we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to just talking about psychiatry either, because the reality of our clinical landscape these days is we are a piece of a much bigger system of care. And we should be talking and collaborating with psychologists, with social workers, with APRNs, with peer specialists, with patients and families. Like Everybody needs to be part of the same team. And we need to acknowledge that mental health is about brains and brain diseases and brain health. And how do we help people navigate that space? I suppose what I was digging for there was a neuroscientist is someone who's not clinically qualified. So someone who has just been fascinated by the brain, the brain and behavior, but has not bothered to go through medical school and train in cardiology and dermatology and respiratory medicine and all the other stuff that maybe they're not very interested in because what they really want to know is how does the thing inside your skull give rise to all of the behavior we observe would you still go through the medical route and become a psychiatrist so this is more personal question than global question. So yeah, at a personal level, I like what I do. Mm. I like what I do. I like treating patients. Uh, and I like teaching. And I like being in, I, I actually really like being in that space where I can interface with, I can hang out, talk with Carl Dice Roth and Ed Boyden about their work and help bring that to clinicians. I like being in that, in that role. Um, I don't think, I mean, I, I was a neuroscientist as your, as the question is stated for a little while, you know, and I loved it. Like I, I did love that work. Um, I think I'm easily happy in different roles. So maybe it's just an existential question. of like, <laughs> who might I have been in a different life and universe? And I probably, maybe I could have been happy. I don't know. I like what I do. Dave Ross, that is the perfect place to leave this podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at 
The BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.